You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, I hope that you are enjoying your spring break. Maybe some of you have already enjoyed it, but some of us are still in the middle of it. As our students get a much needed break from school, our teachers and administrators get a break, I hope that you're able to celebrate and enjoy some time away. Well, not all of us get to be away, right? So I've been trying to involve all of us to kind of share our trips, to share the journeys that we're on. And I want to thank all of you who've submitted pictures, who've given us a window into what you've seen over this last week of spring break. And I want to share a couple of them with you. Uh, The first one that will pop up on the screen comes from our brother Elder Parrish. He's got his water bottle. Can you see this sticker that looks an awful lot like him? Yeah, but he's got his first ABQ mug there and the first logo. And he wanted me to know that uh, even though he's not traveling around for spring break, this water bottle travels with him wherever he goes. So he's got his own billboard for first going around. Well, we also got one. Uh, that you might not be, you might not know that we have a new building. We have a new facility, downtown area. Uh, We'll zoom in a little closer so you can see. Yes, there it is. You did not know that that first was located in downtown. Now this is Denver. (laughs) Anthony and Deva, who are new new friends of first uh, from the first of the year, were up in Denver and they played around with their sticker and put it on their hotel window. And so that's how they came up with this not a first headquarters billboard. But, you know, thanks, Anthony and David. And then I thought I'd share with you what I got to do yesterday. Surprise, surprise, New Mexico called me, and I am stood in the line to get my vaccine yesterday. And so, yeah, yeah, this is only one-third of the line. That's about a football field. It was three football fields long which is a long stretch, but they were pretty fast. And so I did my part. I got my vaccine like President Biden, like all of our past presidents, including Donald Trump and Melania, who you may know got their vaccine before they left the White House, even though both of them had suffered COVID. So I've done my part, and I hope that maybe uh, you'll get to do your part as well. I, I just couldn't resist the mountains. Weren't they beautiful yesterday, blanketed in snow? That was the part that captured my attention. Well, all of us have been on a trip together, not just for spring break, but we've been following Jesus very closely to take a different view than we sometimes do of Jesus, to recognize Jesus' focus on outsiders, that Jesus is for outsiders. So each week we've kind of looked at things a little slant, a little different than we sometimes do as insiders. And today, today I want to ask another question that outsiders will ask of the faith. Probably maybe even one of the ultimate questions. Why did Jesus have to die? Now if we're serious, if we open up our ears and really listen to outsiders, they can ask some very pointed questions. Why does God have to die? If God's God, then why does he have Jesus die to satisfy himself? And when you think about it, those are difficult questions. 
Anytime you talk about death, it's a difficult question to explore. And I don't really care how old you are, you, can't, you don't have to live very long at all before you must face the question of death. And I've noticed that, that our questions about death fall into at least one of two buckets. One bucket is physical, and one is a little bit more abstract. So on that physical bucket, one of the first things that we start to wonder about is, you know, why did someone die? Was there a medical condition? Did an organ fail? Did they have a disease? Was there some circumstance or event that caused them to die? Was it simply old age or something else? Right? So we go through these physical explanations that are more concrete. Well, that's one way to approach death. Another is a bit more abstract. What's the purpose of someone dying? Where do they go? What happens? How does that figure into the meaning of life? Now, I've noticed that with Christians and with religion, sometimes we jump quickly to the abstract. And there's a time and a place for that. In fact, to talk about the question, why did Jesus die? A lot of times we jump straight to that to find theological significance, to find spiritual significance. But I want to step back and stay in this first bucket for a while to really answer that question of why Jesus died from the circumstances, from things that were going on politically, from things that were going on religiously, and to really dwell into the purpose of why Jesus died. And Luke does a great job of this. Being an outsider, his biography gives us this outside view, and he lays it out where well, it might be a little bit surprising to you what he shows us about why Jesus died. But it lays out for us this, this answer to the question. Of even 2,000 years, it makes a bit more sense when we listen to Luke of how it is that Jesus entered a more than 5,000-year-old town, Jerusalem, celebrated, and then ended up being killed. So, I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able, and I'm going to read to you from Luke's biography, and I'm going to invite your participation. Are you up for that? There's a verse that I want you to say with me, and it's going to pop up on the screen when we get to it, and I'll point to you, and let's all say it together, okay? Whether you're at home or right here in our sanctuary. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to pick up first in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he'd come near to Bethpage and to Bethany, the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying the colt? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead departed, and they found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. And they brought it. They brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on it, they put Jesus on the colt. And as he rode along, the people kept spreading their cloaks 
on the road. And as Jesus was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen him do. All right, now here's your part. And saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout it out. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the way that we're going to look at this today, to unpack this story, is in three moves. And the first move is that Jesus is king. Everything he does, all the things that he says, embrace this idea that he is king. What the people do and what the people say point to this notion that Jesus is king. Now, I have to be clear here. Jesus is not king over any earthly place. He's not king in any official capacity. There's no formal title of king for him to rule over. In fact, further, the people that he's coming to, the Jews, they don't even have a kingdom. They are an occupied group of people. They are... uh, oppressed by the Romans who've taken over their land, and they are homeless in their own homeland. So they don't have a kingdom. And yet, here comes Jesus riding in, into this event, acting like he's king in every sense of the word. You know, this this occupation that they're enduring would be kind of like how the United States has been in Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the many countries. The people there have their own land, they have their own kingdom, but they're occupied. And as much as we've done to try to empower them to have their own, sometimes they don't have their own. Well, I can tell you that this group of people, the Israelites, they don't even have a country as, as well organized as Iraq or Afghanistan. They are occupied, and they want to have their own land back. They want to have a king. They want to be on their own. And this story is much like what happened 300 years earlier. Have you heard of a guy named Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem, and he came in on a colt, and he came in to the chance of kingdom and king from the Jews, who ran alongside him. He even took the hand of the high priest, and the high priest led him in sacrifices to the Most High God. So this echoes the story of Alexander the Great coming into the city of Jerusalem. Now there's a lot of other things that are happening here. Uh, with, With Jesus coming in on a cult that he has ordered to be prepared for him, it's very much like King Solomon when his dad said, all right, let's put him on a donkey, let's put him on a mule, and after his coronation, bring him into Jerusalem in 1 Kings 1. Jesus is not afraid of the kingship at all. He is encouraging it. He is embracing it. He is drawing people in. He's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah. 
Chapter 9, verse 9, where the king would enter in triumph, not on a military horse, but peacefully on a donkey, on a mule, on a colt. Well, this is quite a scene of Jesus entering the capital city, of going into uh, the temple and acting and portraying himself as a king, as the Messiah, the Hebrew word for king, as the Christ, the Greek word for king. Well, let's move one. Jesus is king. The second move is how everybody responds. They praise God. They give glory and honor. They lift up the name of God. They're praising. And that, that's easy to gloss over and support. You know, I mean, we, we, do, we don't think much about this. With Matthew and Mark having palm branches and Luke telling us about the cloaks. But their response is significant. Another king, King Jehu, in 2 Kings chapter 9. Whenever the people found out that God had anointed him as king, they lay out their cloaks to usher him in as king. And Jesus embraces it and wants it. Now, it's easy to gloss over this. It's easy to smooth over it. But this is important because it catches the eyes of the religious leader. It's a trigger because they can connect the dots. They see what the people are doing. Whenever Jesus does something powerful, they praise God. And they can connect the dots in the way that the people are connecting the dots. And they don't like it. They want Jesus to make it stop. They want him to put his disciples into check. Say, quit. And Jesus shakes his head and says, no way. If these were quiet, even the stones would scream out praise to God. Well, this is significant. It's something that's kind of unique to Luke. No one else portrays it quite like Luke does. You've not been able to suppress the praise of God in Luke. From the beginning, when John the Baptist's dad, who was a priest, is in the temple and hears what's going to happen, he praises God. All the way to the end of Luke, when a Roman centurion watches Jesus die and praises God. To everything in between. To to beggars and cripples and lepers. To prophets in the temple like Anna and Simeon. All along the way, people are praising God. They are making this connection that Jesus is not just king, but he's divine. These two things are together and should be together. And the religious leaders don't like it one bit, not at all. And that brings us to the third move. The third move that's the most stunning, that really caught me in a new way with this outsider's view. When you expect a king to be marching into their uh, city, their temple where they worship the God, you expect a king to be a warrior. You expect a king to, to be about fortune and gathering more and more gold and materials. You expect a king to to crush and squelch the enemies. You don't expect a king to come into his own capital, into the temple that worships the God that he serves, and attack it. But that's exactly what King Jesus does. He begins to attack not the Roman authorities, but the Jewish authorities. 
all the things that he does over the next several chapters are stunning to me of how he predicts and prophesies up this whole town is coming to the ground. This temple is going to be leveled. This is going to be destructive. Your people, they're going to be dashed to the ground. What? Oh, yeah. And your children are going to be dashed to the ground. What? This doesn't make sense for a king to come into his own place and to speak this way. The odd thing about it is that the Roman authorities don't care too much about it. They don't pay Jesus much mind at all. They're not threatened by a bearded guy on a donkey coming into town. Not threatened at all. In fact, a few chapters later, whenever Jesus uh, is on trial, it's the, it's the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities, that want him executed. They've already had their own trial. And so they tell Rome, hey, look, he's trying to throw this government in disorder. We need to execute him. And Pilate says, I don't think so. Well, let me let you talk to King Antipas. Oh, King Antipas, no, I don't think so. Three different times, Pilate says, no, I, it just, it's not a threat. History books, everything, Rome is not worried about Jesus. But these religious leaders are. Rome sees this as nothing but a squabble, a religious debate between scholars, and they want nothing at all to do with it. And Jesus comes in a very confusing way. Back in chapter 9, he had set his face towards Jerusalem. And last week when I mentioned that, I didn't tell you the full story of what that means. When someone sets their face towards someone, it is also understood as setting your face against them. God does this in Ezekiel 6.2 and in Jeremiah 21.10 where the face of God is turned against his own people to challenge them. And the religious leaders want this stopped. They don't want this kind of conversation to continue. Well, that's the story. What are we supposed to do with that story? The end of Jesus' trip, getting to where he's supposed to be going? So what? Well, remember our question at the front end. Why did Jesus die? Well, it's pretty plain and clear why he died. If you're going to threaten the religious authorities in this way, they're not going to be happy with it. If you're going to turn the government uh, into political chaos by what you're doing, they're not going to like that one bit at all. And even though Rome doesn't care, the Jewish leaders do care. But I look at this, and it's hard to see Jesus commanding anything. So what, like, what do we do with this? It's an interesting story that leads us towards Easter, as Jesus dramatically acts out this play against them. But what he's doing is something quite challenging. The answer to why Jesus dies is because he let outsiders in. He was willing to welcome in those who were excluded, who were not included. And that's why he died. In fact, in this very chapter, he begins to prophesy against Jerusalem. He goes in and he throws the temple into chaos. And he uses this line, if you want to look in verse 46, quoting from Isaiah. My house, says Jesus, shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. The passage in Isaiah is very clear that God intended to make a temple for
for all nations. It's clear. If you read Isaiah 56, all those verses, it's a prayer for a house of prayer for all nations, for foreigners, for people that will turn their attention to God. And that is an amazing thing. It's hard to find churches that have that kind of a focus on outsiders, that kind of an interest on others, to let God truly rule. We're pretty good at running things on our own. God, we don't really need you. But if God rules, God is one that is including the outsiders. I'm thankful to be able to tell you that at first, we are a group of people that follow Jesus. We know who our leader is. We know who we are getting in line behind. And it's Jesus. And we're following him so that we can get closer and closer to God. And so it, it pushes us a little deeper with a story like this. To know if the stones are going to scream out, what is it that we're going to do? How are we going to be? And so I've got some things just for you to think about, to wrestle with. Is our life, the way that we're conducting our lives, is it risking our life for the good of others? Are we willing to risk our very lives for outsiders? That's what Jesus was willing to do. That was the kind of crazy king that Jesus was, to walk in and lay down his very life, not in a military way, but in a way that surrenders himself to others. I think that pushes us to think about how we serve God in our office place. Are we aware of those outsiders, those that might be clumsy, the one that we don't really want on the project, the one that we can tell needs the love of God? Are our eyes open? Is our gaze fixed on those who are different from us? It's true in school as well. Who are those that might be doing as well, not as well in school? Maybe, who are those that are too smart, or ugly, or too beautiful, who are rejected for whatever reason? How do we have eyes for the outsiders? Sometimes in our Christian service, we're focused on really good things, like feeding the hungry, like providing shelter for those that don't have shelter. These are imperative. We have to do these good things. But sometimes we treat them as a category in our life, you know, a one-time mission trip, something that we do one weekend a year. But when Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem, he invites us to think about our everyday lives in that office place, in the school, of how we're going in and looking at others. The reason Jesus died is because that he was, welcome, he was willing to welcome outsiders at the risk of his own life. Well, that's something for us to think about this week as we make our journey toward the cross with Jesus, as we think about all the things that happened in this holy week. I invite you to dwell there, to hear the chants, to hear the praises, to know that we are joining in, we are chiming in, but we're also wanting to chime in with our lives, that we want to build something more. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for, man, a crazy story like this of a king that comes in not attacking the opponents that we expect, but welcoming those who are unwelcomable. 
Father, would you help us to, to take our position, laying our cloaks down, laying our lives down before this leader, before this king. And may we follow Jesus with resolve to recognize those people in our lives that might be outsiders. God, as we continue our worship, we pray that that will spill over onto the streets of Albuquerque by the things that we say and do because we are a people following Jesus. We pray this through him. Amen.